0: Music there kind of lingers longer than I thought it was going to. How are you guys doing? Good morning. I uh, started to say something like, whoa, it's not even done yet, so I got to be careful. Um, Grab your Bibles, turn to 2 Kings 4. We are starting a new series this week, and I would just say, as we've been um, preparing for Easter and kind of that big push, there's been a growing excitement amongst our staff, particularly the guys that are going to be preaching through this series about this series, Tearing Down Strongholds. And uh, how many of you were able to take some time off after Easter on spring break? Raise your hand if you got some time off, right? Okay, some. How many of you got, like, here's a better way to ask it. How many, of you, how many of you had to work the whole week, got no time off? Like you guys are like, I'm so furious, I'll raise my hand. Okay, well some of you did. Some of you actually got down south, got into some warmer weather. We had some warmer weather here early in the week. I got out, I played some golf, it was great. And, um, but now spring break's over, right? It's time to get back to work. And there's a part of me that feels like in this season for our church, for our people, like, like we got to get busy, we got to get back to work. There's some things that God has called us to, and we're going to spend the next two to three months going through this series, Tearing Down Strongholds. So just so we all understand what I'm talking about, um, Webster would define a stronghold as this, a place that has been fortified so as to protect it against attack, So a a stronghold in our lives is going to be something. It's going to be an attitude. It's going to be a pattern of behavior that has taken root. It's something that over long seasons has become fortified in our lives. And uh, we're going to attack it over the course of the next couple, three weeks. We're going to be looking at different attitudes, things like um, bitterness, things like anxiety, doubt, anger depression, sexual addiction, bitterness, laziness, a rebellious spirit, all of these things, identifying strongholds that exist in our lives and attacking them, praying that with God's help we'll be able to tear them down. And I'm just gonna tell you, I would be happy. I'd be really happy as your pastor if for like the next 10 weeks, none of you come up to me and say, Wow, that was a great message. I really hope my husband was listening. Or, uh, boy, I'd really like to get a copy of this. Is this going to be online? Is there uh, someplace that my neighbor could listen to it? Listen, I think we're really, really good at identifying strongholds in other people's lives. I think we're good at identifying strongholds in our culture. I think sometimes we're a little less skilled at identifying strongholds in our own lives. And this would be a season where I would challenge you, don't waste it if we're going to be looking at how strongholds are torn down, if there's a specific stronghold that we're going to address that you say, yeah, that's the area that I struggle, let's make sure that we're applying this to our own lives and not missing the opportunity to be able to look back at this season in 2021 and say, hey, that's a season where I made some real progress with some stubborn sin or stubborn attitudes that I've struggled with for a long time. This morning, we're going to start, if you're keeping notes and tearing down strongholds, we're going to start with the stronghold of complacency. And when I say complacency, here's what I mean, that that there is something in us that is unmotivated, that we are stuck, we're struggling to get going. Our spiritual life lacks any sense of urgency, and we're finding ourselves going through the motions, we're not really experiencing the joy of following Jesus, we're, we're not gripped by the greatness of God. We might be going to church, we might be in small groups, but week after week, month after month, we're doing things, but we're not really moving, we're not really changing, we're not really seeing God show up. And the thing that we long for as a church, the thing that we've prayed for for 10 years since we started the church is that this would be a place where people would experience what we call transcendency. That, that God would show up, that God would change lives, that people would say, I went to that church and for some reason it was there that maybe I experienced the presence of God for the first time and he changed me. See, we're after, as followers of Jesus Christ, transcendency to see God show up, but often that's blocked by our own complacency. A guy by the name of A.W. Tozer in his book, Pursuit of God, described complacency this way. He said, Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. It is a deadly foe for all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present, or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. He waits to be wanted. It's too bad with many of us he waits so long, so very long in vain. There's a story in the Old Testament. It's in 1 Samuel 4. And, and in 1 Samuel 4, the chapter starts out by describing a battle. Israel is going to lose the battle, and the Philistines are going to defeat the army of Israel, and they're going to capture the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Lord. They're going to take it back with them into the land of the Philistines. And, and, and in finding out that the Ark has been captured, the, the high priest Eli, he dies. Like he gets word, He dies. Well, his son Phineas has a wife. Phineas's wife is going to give birth to a son. And because of what's just happened, she gives him a symbolic name. She names this son Ichabod. If, if there's any expectant women in the room or, or moms or dads-to-be, um, that's an awful name. First of all, there's no way to shorten it. Like, like Ick? Like, like, what do you call the kid? you got to think about that when you're naming kids, Right? But but worse than that is what it means. It means that the glory of the Lord has departed. See, when we become complacent, what replaces the presence of God, the manifest presence of God, him moving in our lives, is, is Ichabod. There's three ways or three things that I would point to that cause complacency if you're keeping notes. Here's the first one. Too much of a bad thing. Too much of a bad thing. Now, now do me a favor, a little exercise here as we get going. Everyone in the room, just for a second, close your eyes, okay? Not for the rest of the sermon, that would be sleeping, but just for a moment, okay? Close your eyes, all right? You there? I want you to think of the day in your life where you go, now, that was a bad day. You got it? Like, that was a terrible day. When, When you've got that day, when it comes to your mind, open your eyes again. Okay, if your eyes are still closed, you've had a really cushy life. Like, there should be some days that come to your life. I I could think of many. But the day that comes to my mind, it was a November day. And, And what I remember about this day, I was in my late 20s. It was, for November, unusually warm. It was bright sunshine, one of those fall days that you catch sometimes in Michigan. We had moved to Michigan And and my job at that time, I was overseeing construction of three large homes on the lakeshore in Grand Haven. And the north home was pretty much enclosed. It was close to being finished. The middle house was kind of roughed in the south home that I was working on. We were still doing kind of the rough construction. And these were bigger homes. They were built with primarily rock, steel, and concrete. And uh, this morning was an exciting morning for me. I remember I woke up. I was glad to get to work. I was going to be there about seven. We were having a crew show up at the south house. We were putting up precast panels. It was going to be our last big set with a crane that we had done, you know, for these three houses over the course of the previous year and a half. But on my way to the south house, I heard a boom at the middle house and I went over there and there'd been a problem there by about 7.30 in the morning, a crew had gotten there. There was a petabone. think kind of this tall, extended fork truck. And a guy had tried to move the petabone without bringing down the boom. And he slid into some loose dune sand, and he just tipped the thing over. And I'm like, okay, great. This is, this is going to be a great day because now I've got to get a crane over there. We've gotta, we're going to lose half the day just getting this petabone back on its wheels, and while I was working on that, I got a call at the North House It says, hey, we're going through an inspection, one of the engineers is there, they got a question, can you come there? I'm like, well, I'm dealing with this, and they're like, no, slide over to the North House if you can for a minute, so I go running up to the North House, it's about eight in the morning, and while I'm at the North House dealing with that problem, I get a call on my Motorola radio by one of my coworkers, and he goes, hey, listen, we need you down at the South House. And I'm like, I, serious? And, uh, I could hear he was crying. He's like, no, you need to get here now. And so I jumped in my car. I drove the mile to the south house. And as I was going there, I began to hear the sirens as they approached that construction site as well. And as I pulled up to the construction site, um, there'd been a partial collapse of the structure. And, And things just didn't look great. And as I approached the house, it became evident that this was not an accident. This was a tragedy. There was a man that I had worked with for uh, a year and a half. Uh, his name's Larry, and he was crushed under about thirty thousand pounds of concrete as the house gave way. And uh, my wife came up to the house, and I'm like, "No, you don't want to see this. You need to leave." And um, it's interesting. Over the next few months, see, see, I was the guy that ran the job. I, I, I'm responsible. It was my job. It was my project. And, and we would go through the things that went wrong and the comedy of errors that led to this tragedy. And I could remove myself logically from um, the causality of the accident, the chain of causality. But lawsuits would argue differently. Wrongful death lawsuits would point to me. I was 28 years old. I had three kids, seven Four and one. I had responsibilities, but here's the truth: coming out of that day, I was stuck. I didn't want to go to work the next day. My identity was lost. My confidence was shot. I don't think I went to church the next Sunday, real anxious to sing. And I had some questions, like, "God, why now? Why this? Why me?" And there are seasons where you can go through difficult days. And even as I tell you the story, I know there's some of you in your minds are going, I had way more difficult days than that day. And, and you're right, you did. My, my day's not in particularly worse or better than others, but we all go through difficult seasons. And if we're not careful, those difficults too much of a bad thing. They can get us stuck. Here's another thing that can get us stuck that can lead to complacency. Too much of a good thing. Too much of a good thing. It's interesting in Proverbs 30, verse 8, The author writes, he says this, he says, neither give me poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? And lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. He said, listen, don't put me in circumstances that are so difficult that I profane the name of my God, but also don't give me too much that I say, who is the Lord? See, sometimes too much of a good thing, we we hit a level of success, we achieve a goal. And rather than that pushing us to continue to strive and to push forward, we begin to coast. Too much of a good thing. We, we lose track of the fact that we're in a spiritual battle. It's interesting in Ephesians 4, verse 26, that the passage is talking about anger. It says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Well, why? Verse 27 of Ephesians 4 says, give no opportunity, or, or the NIV says, give no foothold for the devil. Zephaniah 1.12 says, it's God speaking. He says, at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men that are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. They've just become complacent. They're not moving. They're stuck. They're not motivated. And in those seasons when things are too bad or too good, we can find ourselves, uh, don't, don't think you're going to get a, a, allow a stronghold to exist in your life unchallenged, unattacked, and it's not going to lead to bad places. I don't know what's worse. I don't know if it's worse to give the devil a foothold and the havoc he'll bring to your life or to deal with the discipline of our God when we become complacent. Both of those are dangers. And here's the third thing, too much of a, bad thing too much of a good thing. Here's a third, just disruption. Just disruption. I I was in a small group and, and my spiritual disciplines were, were pretty good. I felt like I was growing. I felt like I had accountability, but then we took off for a few months in the summer and, and I just went complacent. Or I, I feel like I was doing well in my spiritual walk and then for a season, uh, our church wasn't able to meet and I didn't like the online thing and Man, man, I just feel like I lost my mojo. Um, A new job, a a new kid, a new boat. There's a lot of things that can disrupt our schedules, a, a move, a relocation. And in those seasons of disruptions, it's easy for us to lose our spiritual disciplines. Matthew 13, 23, in a parable of the soils, it talks about, The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choking out the word in our lives. And often when our schedules are disrupted, and so many of our schedules have been disrupted over the last year, what we find is we have a slow drift towards complacency. And what we're going to see as we look at just seven verses, just an Old Testament quick story from 2 Kings 4, we're going to see three things in how we can battle complacency. We're going to see how God works, what's required of us, and really the the way those two things work together to help us break free if we're struggling with the stronghold of complacency. The big idea, if you're keeping notes, is this if you want to see God move, get moving. If you want to see God move, get moving. We're going to be in 2nd. Second- Kings 4. If you don't know where that is, open your Bible, it'll probably crease somewhere near Psalms and head towards the beginning. You'll see 2 Samuel, or you'll see the Samuels, the Chronicles, Kings is in between. 2 Kings 4, verse 1 starts this way. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but The creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. The first point of this message is this complacency equals risk. Complacency equals risk. Get to God. Get to God whenever we go into a story in the old testament the old testament particularly this part second kings it's called the historical section or second kings is one of the historical books this is an actual story i believe that it happened it was written down for us not that we could learn history or what happened with this woman but paul in his letter to first corinthians says when you go to the old testament the instruction there it's meant for us these stories were written down for For us today, that we would not make the same mistakes that they do, that we would learn through their experience, not have to learn everything the hard way. But but this is a woman, she comes to the prophet Elisha and she says, my husband's dead. You know that he served and feared the Lord. Now the creditors have come to take my two children to be his slaves. Step back through the centuries for a moment and don't miss her pain. She's lost her life partner. She has lost her protector. She has lost her provider. There's no mention of her going back to her family, to her parents or to brothers and sisters that they could provide any relief from her circumstances. So, So that's left unmentioned. She's lost her husband. She's about to lose her two sons because of the debt that her family is in. Um. This is a bad day. This is a bad day. You, you could justify her, you could be compassionate if she kind of just wanted to crawl into a hole and give up. That, that would not be surprising. She has grief, she has fear, she has doubt. She says this to Elijah You know that your servant feared the Lord. So so she probably had some expectations. The equation wasn't working in her mind. I thought if my husband was faithful that we would experience only blessing. I thought that as long as we serve the Lord that we would be able to avoid this type of hardship. Isn't that the way that God should work? We sometimes think that God should work fairly, that he should work instantly, that he should put us in a place where we really never suffer as followers of Christ. Well, here's the stark reality we all face times of desperate need, don't we? We, we all face times of desperate need. If, if you're the one guy in the room who still has his eyes closed because he can't think of a difficult season, um, well, I'd encourage you first to wake up. But it's coming. We all face times of desperate, desperate need. We all go through difficult times. No one in this room will get a hall pass on suffering. You understand that, right? And, and here's... The truth that God isn't going to always respond to us on our timetable the way that we think that he should respond. But the one thing in the promise that we have in Scripture is this, that even when we go through difficult times, God's using those for our good and for his glory. We're told in James verses 1, or James chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It is a rule, it is a principle, it is a way that God works, that often what he does is he puts his Children, He puts his followers in seasons of difficulty so that he can prove himself faithful. He wants to hear our pleas and our cries for help. And quite honestly, we begin to see a pattern that when we are at our darkest time, at our most desperate time, and we cry out to the Lord, we can have confidence that he hears, right? We're told in Psalm 18, David cries out. He says, in my distress, I called to the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. Listen to what it says. From his temple he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. Listen, when when life overwhelms, get to God. God doesn't promise rescue immediately, but we have the confidence that he's working these things together for our good. So the... This woman in 2 Kings 4, losing her husband, about to lose her sons, every reason to lose hope, to give up hope. But she doesn't. She doesn't become complacent. Don't miss the first thing that we see. The first thing that she did was in her hour of need, in her desperation, where did she go? She went to the prophet Elisha. In the Old Testament, he was the spokesman for God. She got to God. It's not feature of the story. It's something you could read it and miss, but in her most desperate time, she seeks out the prophet. She gets to God. In her distress, she unloads her problems to the man of God. Here's the second thing. Verse 2, she responds with small steps of obedience. Verse 2, Elijah says to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what what do you have in your house? Now, we're going to give Elisha some grace here, okay? He's not a pastor. He's a prophet. He, he's, he's a spokesman. So a woman has just lost her husband. She's about to lose her kids. She goes to the prophet Elisha, explains her need, and, and the best he can dial up in that moment is, so what do you want me to do about it? Like, like I would have wanted a little bit better. I hope our pastoral staff responds a little better when you come with a crisis or a, a need or a care but it's interesting, he's like, well, so what, what do you want me to do? And then he does something else interesting, he's like, what do you have? Like, in essence, I'm not going to solve your problem, what do you have? Like, like, what can you bring to the deck? What are ways or things that you can do to solve this crisis? And she responds at the end of verse 2, she says, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Servant has nothing except a jar of oil. Here's a point. You're going to want to write this down. It's going to be on the test, okay? God only asks what we have. God only asks what we have. In, in an hour of discouragement, in a, in a season of complacency, I think sometimes I fall into a pattern of thinking that, that I just am not going to be able to pull myself out of this. That's true. That's true. I'm going to need God's help, but I also can have the confidence to know that as as empty as I feel in that moment, God only needs what I can bring. This is the way God moves. Hey, let's, let's play a game. Let's see how good you guys are. Can you think of times in the Old Testament or the New Testament? We'll start with the Old. Think of times in the Old Testament where God took something that someone could bring, and it seemed trivial in the moment, but that's the thing that God used to show his glory and to manifest his power. Can you think of any examples from the Old Testament? And, okay, we're going to go back to open your eyes. Okay, like, like don't still be asleep. Like, like you can't think of anything in the Old Testament? Come on, give me something. Okay, hold on. Somebody said it over here. David and Goliath. Okay, so, so, so David, he comes. There is a Philistine warrior by the name of Goliath, probably the toughest dude in his day. And David says, if the power of the Lord is with me, I can defeat him. And the army reluctantly agrees because everyone else is too scared to fight him. So what difference does it make? And they say, why don't you come in and we're going to equip you in Saul's, uh, the king's armor and we're going to give you his sword. The problem is Saul was a big dude and David was just a little guy. So he puts on the armor, it doesn't fit. He doesn't know how to use it. He's never fought in that armor before and he's like, this is crazy. I'm just going to go out and fight the giant with my sling. So David goes and he grabs five little stones he took, right? From the babbling Brook, there's a song I remember. And, and, and he goes and he takes his slingshot and um, goes out and faces a giant. And he fires a stone. Do you, any of you guys remember where it hits the giant? Right here, yeah, you pointed to it right there, right? Is that because David was such an awesome shot with a slingshot? Or you think maybe God was guiding that stone? Like, like don't, don't miss who to give glory to in this story. But it's a great example. David takes a sling. Can anybody else think of another story? From the Old Testament. What's that? Moses' staff. Okay, so, so Moses is by the burning bush, and, and Aaron or Moses is there, and God says, hey, you're going to go set my people free from the land of Egypt. I'm going to send you down. You're going to be my prophet, my mouthpiece, and that, that's problematic because Moses stutters, right? So he's like, like pick somebody else, man. Like, like I'm going to stutter. I'm going to make a fool out of myself, and, and, and God's like, okay, so to give you some confidence, I'm going to let you take Aaron with you too, like he's going to go, but, but what's that in your hand, Moses? Well, It's my staff. I'm a shepherd. I hit sheep with it. I pull them back when they go astray. He goes, that's the thing I'm going to use. You might think you're just a shepherd, but I'm going to take that staff, and the power of God is going to be manifested through this staff in front of Pharaoh and his court. God using just what we can bring to manifest his glory. How about New Testament? Any examples from the New Testament you guys can come up with? Come on. What's that? Okay, she said, she said Jesus feeding the 5,000. Someone over here said, boy, with the lunch. I think those are the same story. Can we say those are the same? Okay, so, so we know the story. So Jesus, Jesus is out teaching in the wilderness, and 5,000 men, uh, probably 10,000 people, have followed him out to the wilderness, and the disciples notice that after Jesus has taught all day, I'm only going like 40 minutes, he went all day. I just want to point that out, but he teaches all day. And, and the disciples are like, the people are hungry. And Jesus looks at the disciples, he goes, well, go do a survey, see how much food that they brought. And, and listen, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but at that moment, I'd be looking at Jesus and going, well, if they brought food, they wouldn't be hungry. Like the survey seems foolish, but if you command it, we'll do it. And they go out and they go through 5,000 people, what did you bring, what did you bring? They find one boy and he had five fish and two I always get those backwards. I'm glad you're answering that. I'm going to trust you on that, okay? So so he finds a small portion of food, and he takes it and begins to feed 5,000, 10,000 people. And at the time that he's done, it says that he was left with 12 large baskets of leftovers. Again, God just using the small things that we can bring and doing the miraculous with them. In our seasons of complacency, don't believe. Don't let the devil convince you that you you don't have enough, that you're too empty. What the woman is asked to do here? Look what the disciple. Look what Elisha says to her in chapter in verse three. Elisha says, "Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, neighbors, empty vessels and not too few." Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. I got to admit, that seems a little weird. Like, like if I were going to go to my neighbor's house, if I'm in desperate need, I would ask for full vessels. Like, like do you have any oil that you can spare? I, I'm sure there were some neighbors that were like, man, if you're in desperate need, let me, let me give you some oil. No, 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 pour it out. I only want empty vessels. And I can think of a lot of reasons or this woman could choose not to obey. God only asks what we have. He says, hey, what do you have? I have just one jar of oil. Well, go get empty vessels. I just believe God could have handled this a whole different way, don't you? I think like Amazon could have shown up the next day with two 55-gallon drums of oil. The truck could have been there. They could have just wheeled it off. They could have, God could have met the need. I think he could have brought a tanker and like parked it in her backyard if he wanted to. Don't you believe he could do that? Why ask the woman to go collect empty vessels? I can think of a lot of reasons why the woman would say, nah, bad idea, I'm not going to do it. Maybe at the time she was too overwhelmed with grief. Seriously, now, in this season, you, you're, give, you're tasking me with things to do? You want me to be obedient? Don't you understand that I'm too overwhelmed? Maybe she was just... I'm too busy. I've got three mouths to feed. I'm I'm in desperate need. Really? You're giving me a task that doesn't seem to make any sense? Here's one. The whole idea of going from house to house and collecting empty vessels, and note, he says, don't get too few. Like That that creates some awkward conversations with your neighbors, doesn't it? Hi, knock, knock, knock. This is not a who's there joke. Don't go there. Okay, knock, knock. She knocks on the door. Hey, what can I do for you? I need some empty vessels. For what? I don't know. (laughs) How how many do you need? All of them. Why? I don't know. It it just seems like an awkward exchange when you go house to house to ask for the vessels. Maybe she's just like, this is going to be embarrassing. If, If I do what you ask me to do, I'm going to feel foolish. You ever felt that way with some of the things that God asked us to do? But but, but here's one. Maybe she's got a concern. Maybe she's got a lingering doubt that I'm going to do the obedient things that you've asked me to do, and God, I'm still worried that you're not going to show up and do what you need to do, what I need to see you do. So maybe some lingering doubt would have prevented her from going forward. But again, she's doing the right thing. She got to God. She is now going to go door to door. She's going to send her sons, and they are going to collect Empty jars. It is up to us to do what is in our power to do. God only asks her to do what she can do. God's going to use what she can bring. And when she focuses on obeying, she can be assured that God is not going to be behind in his provision. Verse 5, so she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought vessels to her. Here's something that I really love about this story This is not some big, grand display of God's provision. It seems to be happening behind closed doors. It seems to be a miracle that is about to take place that is really only shared between her and her sons, her family. Man, I hope you have stories like that in your family of seasons where God has provided in seasons where, where, where your family needed God to show up, that you were faced with a crisis and a struggle, and you can recount those stories to your children because the truth is, when we quit talking about the works of God, we lose our wonder for God, and we can find ourselves drifting into complacency. But here behind closed doors, God is going to do a miracle to meet the specific need of this family. So first we see She got to God. Secondly, we see that she responded with small steps of obedience. Here's the third point. God is waiting to prove his faithfulness. Look at verse 6. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. And then the oil stopped flowing. And she came and told the man of God, that's Elisha. She said to him, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts and you and your son can live on the rest couple things I want to point out. When she came to Elisha in verse 1, she had a desperate need. Her husband had died, the collectors were coming, and she was going to lose her kids. Her prayer was, give me relief so that I can keep my children. Do you notice how God answers her cry, her desperate cry? Not only will I give you relief and spare your children, but I'm going to provide enough oil so that you can live off the rest exceeding what she even prayed for in God's response. Isn't that just like our God? So often when we go through times of desperate need and we're struggling and we grow complacent and we're like, will God ever show up? And he's like, oh, you just wait. Because when I show up, I'm going to bring it. And what I'm going to bring is going to exceed what you even asked for. That's exactly what this family experiences. As they got to God, they responded with small steps of obedience. God exceeded their requests or their expectation. And then I want you to see this. When in verse 6, they were bringing her vessels. Like, like I don't know how this worked. I don't know how many of the kids brought. If they were, if they were high school, maybe, maybe they were lazy, right? Maybe, maybe they went not and got like 30 jars. And as one jar began to fill the second, began to fill the third, began to fill the fourth, began to fill the fifth, it sounds like they were continuously running to the neighbors. You got any more? You got any more? Can you bring any more? I don't know how many they brought. Maybe they cleared out the village. Maybe they brought all that they was able to bring. But here's the question. Do you think if they had gotten two more, do you think God could have filled them? Oh yeah, for sure. Do you think if they collected 10,000 empty vessels, do you think God could have filled them all? Do you think it was in his power? Oh, absolutely. Don't miss this. God only fills what we're willing to bring. God only fills what we're willing to bring. When we stop bringing, he stops filling And I don't want you to miss this. So at the beginning of the story, the woman is in desperate need. At the end of the story, she has enough not only to pay off her collectors and the debtors, but she has enough to um, provide for her family. What made the difference? Was it a bunch of empty vessels? What had value? Was it the empty vessels or was it the oil? I'd argue it was the oil, right? The empty vessels were just there to store the oil. So, so, so what got her out of her predicament? What was the answer to her prayers? Was it what she could do or was it what only God could provide? God will do what he can do. He's asking for us to be obedient in the small things that we can do. A few years ago, I, I met with a man. He was in the process. They had been involved in our church, heavily involved. And um, he was leaving the church, and, and I wanted to meet with him. He was gracious enough to meet with me. I asked him why he's leaving the church. He goes, I'm really, I really struggle with the way that you teach about salvation. Okay, so he's kind of going to the heart of the issue. This is a big deal for me. He goes, you teach work salvation. And I'm like, nah, I really don't. Like, like every week I preach. I'm, I preach that you're saved by, by grace alone, that it is a work of God, that he unconditionally loved us, that he's chosen us. I I don't think that's something that I'm teaching. And here's what he began to explain to me. He goes, you got to look at salvation as all the way back from your election before the foundation of of the world to your glorification when we're someday in heaven. And it starts with your election, and then it goes to your point of conversion where you recognize your desperate need, and then it goes through a process called sanctification after you're saved for the rest of your life, you're gonna be conformed to the image of God, and then eventually we get to heaven and sin is defeated, it is removed. We look forward to that day, right? And we're glorified later. And he says, you preach that God completely does everything as it relates to your conversion, that he uh, reveals himself, that he draws us to himself, that he elected us before the foundation of the world, but in sanctification, you make it sound like it's our job because you're always pushing your people to try harder, to work harder, to do more, to become more like Christ. Christ. And he said, sanctification is solely a work of God. Quit pushing, quit urging. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And I paused and I'm like, you're right. I teach a workspace sanctification. Or if you listen to some things that I say, I can see how you would, it would sound that way. So I want to be really clear because I think this is the best <laughs> illustration in the Bible of how our sanctification works. We're empty vessels. We're empty vessels. Any change, anything that happens, it makes us more like the image of God. He gets all the glory for. He's the one bringing the oil. He's the one doing the work. But I don't want you to miss this. As it relates to our sanctification throughout the New Testament, when you listen to the words of Christ and you listen to the words of Paul, we are not told to sit back complacent and let God do something we're called into partnership. Paul will say, listen, run the races if you want to win. Box as if you're going to be in a prize fight. God is inviting us into the process through small steps of obedience to bring what we can and then glorify him for the transformation he brings. This is clearly taught in Philippians 3 verse 10. Paul is crying out. He says, that I may know Christ, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. And then in Philippians 3, verse 12, he goes on and says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. Listen to the way he describes the way he lives. He goes, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus or Christ, Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward, to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way. And though I think we'll sit around in heaven someday giving God all the glory for the transformation in our lives, don't think for a minute that the expectation on you is to do nothing and that God's going to show up and change you. Paul, I press on. He urges us, fight the good fight. We're called into this process, and here's the reality. There are some strongholds in our lives that on our own, we don't have the power to tear down. And this is not going to be a series where we just try harder and work on our disciplines and white-knuckle it. We're going to be saying, God, we're going to do the small things we're going to do, and we're going to be praying that you show up in a big way because the only way this thing's getting torn down is through your power. We don't have the guns. We don't have the heavy artillery. A verse that's going to be key through this study is from 2 Corinthians 10. In verse 3, it says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. Listen, God's only going to fill what we're willing to bring. God's going to require us to do what's in our power to do. And then we're going to pray that God shows up mightily and does the things that only He can do. So, what is that stronghold? in your life that you want to see victory over what is that thing in your life that you say by God's grace I would pray that this pattern of thinking that these doubts that these fears that these anxieties whatever it may be these patterns of thinking I would finally have victory over what what are the stubborn sins the the addictions the anger What are the strongholds in your life that you would like to get victory over in this season? See, this is why we as pastors are excited for what God's going to do in the next three months. And I can pray with full expectation that over the course of the next few weeks, lives are going to be changed. Victory is going to be achieved. People are going to experience the manifest presence of God as they get into God's word and they pray that God shows up in ways that even exceed our expectation. That's going to happen in this room for some. Here's what I don't know. I don't know how many. I pray that it's you. I pray that it's me. But here's what I can promise you. God's only going to fill those who are willing to come as empty vessels and submit themselves to the overflow of his grace. So we're going to partner with God on the transformation that we want to see in our lives. We're going to tear down strongholds through small steps of obedience and getting to God, believing that he's going to do what only he can do. And at the end of the day, we're going to thank him for removing strongholds that only he can remove. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement from a simple story in 2 Kings. Father, my fear would be in this season that hearts in this room have grown complacent. It's been a difficult uh, set of months that we've all gone through. It's been a difficult um, season. It's been a season of disruption and distraction. And we bring cares and we bring concerns, but God, do not let us grow complacent. Do not let us take our eyes off the God who is in control, the God who sees, the God who is working all things together for our good, and the God who has promised that he will come again. Father, let that be our hope and let it not waver. It's in your name we pray, amen.